people coming along and, and uh, doing so well for the Lord. What a great, great blessing that is, and uh, we thank God for it. Uh, Mark chapter 9 is where we're going to be tonight, and we're going to begin looking in a few moments in verse 38. I often say, because we finished last weekend, verse 37, we're making our way verse by verse through the gospel of Mark, and I hope to complete this gospel prior to my death, hopefully. We've been in it a long time, and that's great. Look, here's my thought. What's the hurry, right? We might as well just get all we can out of this great gospel, and Mark chapter 9 is where we are. I'm a huge advocate of youth sports. I just believe that something good happens when young people learn how to get out there and exercise and be a part of a team. And growing up, I was never the kind of guy that had the ability to win friends and influence people. I always had a hard time talking, always a little bit shy. And I never was a great athlete, but I was proficient enough that I always could at least make a team. And when I was on a team, I felt a part of something and developed relationships within the context of a team. And it put me in a position where I never was totally alone as long as I was able to participate in a team. And, and so I'm a, I'm a great advocate of youth sports. To be sure, some, some go overboard and make an idol of them. Some parents take it a step or two too far. I, I received a clipping and it shared a story of a coach that called one of his seven-year-old hockey players over and he said, son, do you understand what cooperation is? The boy nodded and and he said, do you know what team is? The boy nodded. He said, do you understand that what matters is not whether we win or lose, but that we play together as a team and we do our best, we reach our potential? And the little boy nodded and the coach said, so I'm, I'm sure you know that when a penalty is called, you, you shouldn't argue or curse out the referee. It's not a good thing to do. You shouldn't call him bad names. You shouldn't attack him. That's not the way to handle that. And the boy nodded and and he said, and son, when I call you off the ice, you realize it so another player can come in and, and he can have a turn on the ice as well. And the, the little boy said, yes, I understand. The coach said, so you realize you shouldn't call your coach a jerk if you come out of the game. Yes, I know that. The coach said, good. Now go over there and explain all that to your mother. Okay, that's something she needs to know. <laughs> but kept in perspective, you do find a lot of great lessons in the process of being a part of a team. You, you learn what work is all about, the value of practice. You learn about cooperation. You learn about winning. And Inevitably, you learn about losing sometimes, and, and I can remember playing sports as a young person growing up, and I'd get a lot of instruction, and I can recall those times when our coach would get the team together, and he would give some kind of encouragement that would say, listen, we've got to do better, and he might mention one area or another, but more of a general admonishment, hey, we have got to do better, and we would listen, and some help would come by way of a coach saying, we have got to do better, but in the midst of a timeout or a team meeting, when the coach would look at me and say, chapel, you have got to do better. You've got to stop the man you're guarding, or you've got to hustle more, or you've got to do better shooting the ball, whatever the case may be. When it was a little more specific, it seemed to hit a little more closely to home. I would take it a little more to heart. I felt a greater sense of responsibility when the, marks weren't, when the remarks weren't just general, but they were specific right to me. Now, in a similar sense, much of what Christ's teaching has, has been so far has been the large crowds. And it's been in a parabolic form. He's been delivering many parables. But in our recent studies, a corner has been turned. And Jesus is teaching his apostles in great clarity and with much candor. In fact, it's interesting to note that of the six times Jesus is called teacher in the Gospel of Mark, five of those six times are in chapters 9 and, and chapter 10. There was some serious teaching going on, and it was a very direct type of teaching. In our last study, just to bring us up to speed, Jesus very specifically dealt with an argument the apostles were having one with another. They were talking about who would deserve the positions of prominence in Christ's kingdom. Of course, they didn't understand all that would precede the coming kingdom. They were more interested in, in gaining those positions. And Jesus revealed to them that they were looking at it all wrong. He said to them, if any man desire to be first, the same shall be last of all and servant of all. 
Now, whether John was seeking to redirect the attention of Christ away from an uncomfortable conversation or whether he was drifting in his attention, we find he begins in the verses before us tonight by seeking to change the topic of conversation. Jesus is heading one direction, and we're going to see that a question is brought up that doesn't exactly fit in with what the Lord is saying. And and in so doing, we find that Jesus continues to be very specific in his instruction And in his instruction, which was directed to his apostles, we find help for us today. And so if you're able, I'd like to invite you to join me in standing. We're going to look to to the text together, Mark chapter 9, beginning in verse 38. The Bible says, and John answered him. Now again, I'm going to read on, but let's not forget, uh, Jesus has just finished really encouraging his apostles for the need of being servants and, and following and loving and In verse 38, John answered him, saying, Master, we saw one casting out devils in thy name, and he followeth not us. And we forbade him, forbade him, because he followeth not us. Now, I'm going to read on, but that really didn't fit into the topic of conversation. Jesus is teaching them about being a servant and and about humility. And and, uh, then John just kind of uh, brings a a topic of conversation up. You, You know, Lord, we saw someone casting out devils in your name, but he wasn't with us, so... We told him, you've got to stop doing this, verse 39. But Jesus said, forbid him not. For there is no man which shall do a miracle in my name that can lightly speak evil of me. For he that is not against us is on our part. For whosoever shall give you a cup of water to drink in my name because you belong to Christ, verily I say unto you, he shall not lose his reward. And whosoever shall offend one of these little ones that believe in me, it is better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck and he were cast into the sea. And if thy hand offend thee, cut it off. It's better for thee to enter into life maimed than having two hands to go into hell into the fire that never shall be quenched. Where their worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. And if thy foot offend thee, cut it off. It's better for thee to enter halt into life than having two feet to be cast into hell, into the fire that never shall be quenched. Where the worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. And if thine eye offend thee, pluck it out. It's better for thee to enter into the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hell fire. Where the worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. For everyone shall be salted with fire, and every sacrifice shall be salted with salt. Salt is good, but if the salt have lost its saltness, wherewith will ye season it? Have salt, I want you to take note of this expression, in yourselves. I think it's noteworthy that we many times talk about our need as believers to salt the world in which we're living, and the emphasis here is not about Salting the world, it's about making sure on the inside. We're going to develop this. Have salt in yourselves and then take note of the final expression. And this expression, I believe, is the heart of what Christ is teaching here. It's the central aspect of what he's helping them to understand. And it'll serve as our our, uh, title for tonight. Have peace one with another. I believe all that Jesus said in this text leads to this final statement where he says, John and the rest of you, listen. Have peace, one with another. I want us to think of this together tonight and ask the Lord to help us in in, in the course of our study. Brother Steve, would you mind from where you are just lifting your voice and asking God to bless the the preaching of his word?
Amen. Thank you. you may be seated. <clears throat> As Christ dealt with the apostles about a selfish desire for position, things grew increasingly uncomfortable. The teaching grew less general, more specific, and frankly, Jesus was touching on some issues that all of the apostles had demonstrated in a very visible way in their lives. Each of them knew that they were guilty of the very things Jesus was discussing. Perhaps in an attempt to show loyalty to Jesus, John steps up to mention some things he thought were, were worthy of note. He, he said this to Jesus. He said, we saw one casting out devils in thy name. I have to wonder why he said that. As I mentioned a moment ago, it didn't really fit into the context of the discussion. And so John here mentions, we saw one casting out devils in thy name. And, and it could have been that, that uh, this was brought to his mind by the last statement Jesus made about receiving children in his name. Maybe it was the fact that they had recently struggled with a demon-possessed boy. You may recollect as they came down from Christ from the Mount of Transfiguration, the other nine apostles were there and they could not cast a demon out of a boy. Whatever the reason, John makes a statement that reveals a concern in his heart. Now, as we take a look, we see the one casting out the demons. And John said that as he took note of what was happening, he said, We forbade him because he followeth not us. Now, the issue was not the success in the man casting out demons. He was succeeding. More so, in fact, than the apostles had been. The issue was not the power whereby the man was doing the miracles, because the power whereby the man was doing the miracles was found in the name of Jesus Christ. The issue, according to John, was the fact that this man was not with them. He said, he followeth not us. In other words, he's not a part of our group. He's not a part of, of us, you know. There's us and everybody else. And if he's not on the inside, he's on the outside. And I don't care if what he's doing is good, if he's succeeding, and if it's being done in the power of the name of Jesus Christ, thus to the glory of Jesus Christ. If, if he's not a part of our group, I, I felt inclined to tell him to stop what he was doing. As we look to this text tonight, I want us to begin by seeing a superficial segregation. A superficial segregation. No problem could be had with the name by which the man John observed was casting out devils. It was all done in the name of Christ. The, the problem was the fact that this man was not a part of their group. And how human is it for us to look at things that are being done in the name of Christ in other places and, and quickly coming to the decision that it's wrong and they need to stop because they follow not us. And I believe tonight, in all honesty, that much evil has taken place in the name of Christianity as one group has taking time to malign another group simply for failing to be a part of their group. Now, Jesus was quick to point out that they had made a mistake here. John said, listen, we, we forbade him. And Jesus immediately replies by saying, forbid him not, for there is no man which shall do a miracle in my name that can lightly speak evil of me. In other words, Jesus is saying, this man can't do a miracle by my name through the power associated with my name. And then turn around and malign me. This is a man that is doing a work and it's, it's being blessed. Jesus added to that by saying this, he that is not against us is on our part. Now, the Lord was not suggesting here that we should unite with unbelievers. That's not what I'm saying tonight at all. And the Bible makes that crystal clear. In 2 Corinthians 6 and 14, Paul clearly says, Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? And what communion hath light with darkness? But many times through church history, people have forgotten those words. The words Jesus gave to the disciples. We're not to condemn others who act in Jesus' name because they're not part of our group or our church, whatever the case may be. Those who act in the name of Jesus 
are with us, even if they're not always of us. Occasionally, when I travel to other countries, I'll have an opportunity to, to meet Christians, and they'll have a little different style in the way they do things. They will have had a different culture in which they were raised, a different way of, of expressing themselves. In the Orient, for example, in, in Korea specifically, I know that many times you'll arrive to church an hour, two hours before service. The auditorium will be nearly filled, and people will be praying silently for the power of God to rest upon the services. Very earnestly, many times as they pray, they'll be leaning forward in their seats and they'll even rock forward back and forth. And in our culture, that would seem strange, but in their culture, it's a way of expressing their earnest desire for God the Spirit to show up in the services. Very quiet. You go to Africa or other places, many times it, it's a very exuberant expression. The singing is loud and the clapping and, and uh, there's a, just a different approach to it altogether. And, and many times, and, and I say this to my own shame, as, I, as I've observed Christians uh, worshiping in, in various cultures and in different contexts, I've, I've many times viewed them with, with skepticism, many times even suspicion. But can I tell you tonight that I've learned that God's work is a whole lot bigger than I am? And God's work is a whole lot bigger than our church is. And God's work is, is a whole lot bigger than our group is, whatever uh, that, that may be. I'm glad to tell you that, that God is doing a wonderful work. And it's a joy to know that there are Christians around the world serving Jesus with all of their hearts. And meet. we've never heard of them many times. And they've never heard of us. And when we encounter them, encouragement is in order, not condemnation. The point of the statement was not to overlook sin or condone that which is wrong. It's to support unity as you're able within the context of, of biblical doctrine. For the first time in Christ's teaching in the Gospel of Mark, the Lord speaks of something. He speaks of a reward. Of a reward. Now, rewards are a big part of, of the church epistles, the pastoral epistles. Uh, it's something we find mentioned in, in uh, the revelation that John received from, from the Lord. And, and as Jesus spoke of this, he said this, For whosoever shall give you a cup of water to drink in my name, because you belong to Christ, verily, or truly, I say unto you, he shall not lose his reward. Jesus says there's a reward to be gained and it's a reward that, that comes by way of, of honoring others in the name of Christ. The whole message of this text is found in Jesus' teaching in the very closing words when he said this, have peace with one another. And when we foster peace and give encouragement, it is an act that does not go unnoticed by God. He notices these things. In fact, the Bible says these things are rewarded. And God is keeping careful account of those who extend a cup of grace in His name. And He will reward us accordingly. And as we look to this text, the apostles had a superficial segregation ongoing. But that leads us to the second element in our study where we find a significant separation. The next words in Christ's teaching to His apostles are very interesting. It's apparent that Jesus was using the strongest terms possible. He's trying to make a point that would not soon be forgotten. And, and he begins by saying in this text, Whosoever shall offend one of these little ones that believe in me, it's better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck and he were cast into the sea. Into the sea. Now, uh, the millstone referred to here is just a weighted object about one's neck that would send him in the water to a death by way of drowning. And the thought is this, there will be stumblings and falls and loss of souls enough from the world's treatment of disciples without any addition from us. It's a terrible thought to think that the way we handle things in life could actually lessen the influence of Jesus Christ. That through our demeanor and through our actions, we could, we could take away from the glory that is due the Lord. You see, Jesus says this, for it must needs be that offenses come, but woe to that man by whom the offense cometh. 
Now, to put these words in context may help us to go back to verse 36 in our study. We began in verse 38 tonight, but in verse 36, the Bible says this, and he took a child and set them in the midst of them. That's verse 36. But later on, he said, whosoever shall offend one of these little children. So Jesus, in verse 36, is using a child as an object lesson, and he references here again a child. And and if Jesus were in the home of Peter, as I believe he probably was there in Capernaum, and, and as if in the midst of Peter's home, he found a little child to serve as an object lesson again I, I believe this very well could have been Peter's child here he is and and this child is serving as an object lesson and Jesus was saying that the horror of offending or stunting the growth of a young or immature believer is beyond our comprehension and it's to be avoided at all costs see this in no way removes our responsibility to teach and train and lead but friends it does take away a brash or needlessly harsh harsh approach in doing so as our church reaches out to people, we find them in all stages. And some come to our church and they're mature in the faith. We praise God for that. But the group that we've been the most passionate about since the day we began is, is people that, that don't know Jesus Christ as their Savior. And that means that in many ways that, that uh, they entertain practices in their lives simply because they don't know any better. And just because someone has accepted Jesus Christ doesn't mean they know all there is to know about the Christian life. And so it's going to be in any church that is growing, any church that is sharing the gospel, you're going to have some people that are mature in the faith. And I thank God for many of you here tonight who are mature in the faith. But there are going to be those also that have just been born again into the family of God. And they're trying to figure out what it's all about. And they may not have it all figured out the way some others do, but they're coming along. And the last thing we need to do is to needlessly offend them and stunt their growth by requiring them to conform to our standard for acceptance in their lives. That's wrong. That's wrong. Is the moral of the story that we're to overlook things that are wrong? Of course it's not. But we're to accept people for who they are and where they are as we seek to lead them on. One, one uh, uh, way I've often put this is you have to catch a fish before you clean it. There's an order here. As I was thinking of this tonight, I was reminded of an experience I had on the men's camping trip that I think will illustrate what I'm talking about. I want you to watch this video real quick. No applause? Come on, guys. All right, it gets a little gross from there. We'll cut it off, all right? But uh, I, I wanted to get that fish all cleaned out because I had big plans for that fish, all right? 
Uh, I won't tell you what all my plans for that fish involved, but I had big plans for that fish. But I kind of forgot you have to make sure you catch the thing before you start cleaning it. And sometimes in church, what we do if we're not careful is we try to force people to perform up to a, a level when they're just not ready yet. We need to win people to Christ. We need to make sure they know who they are in Jesus Christ and make sure that the basis for what they do is they grow in the Lord is, is not doing something to conform on the outward so that we'll say, boy, look how good they're doing. They're starting to look like us, aren't they? We rather need to say, listen, you need to understand that Jesus loves you and he accepts you and there's not a thing we do to have to merit his love or gain his acceptance. All of it is to be done from the platform of an unconditional love and acceptance from Jesus Christ. As the thought is developed, Jesus extends a threefold warning for would-be offenders. There's a threefold warning in this text. Jesus says, in essence, that if your hand or your foot or your eye offends, it's better for you to separate from them than, as Jesus says here, to go into hell, into the fire that shall never be quenched. Now, these are strong words. These are strong words. Jesus spoke a lot about hell. In fact, he did so more than any other teacher in Scripture. Hell, in fact, was more frequently mentioned than heaven. It'd be a horrible thing to go to hell, and it would be a horrible thing to offend someone in such a way that they reject Jesus as seen in us. And it's also a horrible thought that we could lead someone to waste their lives in the Lord because we offend them in the course of their spiritual growth. The word translated hell in this text is Gehenna. It comes from a, a Hebrew phrase, really, that means the Valley of Hinnon. It refers to an actual valley outside of the city of Jerusalem. It was a place where the wicked king in the Old Testament, Ahaz, worshipped Molech, the, the fire god. He even sacrificed children in this place. In Jeremiah 7, 31, the Bible says, and, <clears throat> excuse me, and they have built the high places of Tophet, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnon, to burn their sons and their daughters in the fire, which I commanded them not, neither came it into my heart. It was basically a dump. It was a place that had been used in pagan worship. It was a place of, of waste. And there are two thoughts that should come to our minds as we consider this. First of all, hell is a place to be avoided through faith in Jesus Christ. And I know I've heard people say, well, you ought not scare people into salvation by talking about hell all the time. And to that I say Jesus did, you know. Hell's a place you don't want to go and you shouldn't want anyone else to go there. In fact, uh, I, I'm not a big fan of cursing at all, but that'd be a horrible thing to tell someone to go there. Jesus says, no, hell's, hell's not a place you want to go. It's a horrible place. But second, no person of faith should offend in such a way that a life is wasted like the refuse in this place. Jesus believes in a place called hell, a place of eternal torment and, and righteous punishment. I heard a story of uh, some soldiers who were getting ready to engage in a battle and, and the chaplain was there and talking with them before they were going and the chaplain mentioned in the course of his words that he didn't believe in hell. And I was told, according to this story, the soldiers got together and said they no longer wanted that chaplain with them. And they concluded this way. If there's no hell, we frankly don't need you. And if there is a hell and you don't believe in one, then we don't want you. <laughs> Friends, hell is a pretty central uh, theme in all of this. It's, it's something to be avoided. It's, it's a real place. Now, as the threefold warning was given, we know that Jesus was not referring to a literal surgery. Maybe you watch a little house on the prairie, you know, where, where uh, Carolyn, she, she got sick and she decided what she needed to do. She opened her Bible, put her finger on this verse. And Any of you watch that one? Oh, people, you got to get out a little bit more. All right, that's a good one. Uh, she, she uh, in her confusion due to her sickness, she took this literally and she thought what I need to do is remove my leg. And of course, this is not a literal surgery. The point was already made that sin comes from the heart, the heart. 
Jesus was referring here, and if you think of the progression, to the hand that gives the offense, to the foot that carries us to the place in which the offense is given, and to the eye, which is the window to the soul that imagines the offense before we even get it. You see, there must be an urgent recognition of the fact that we not only have the capacity to do much good when we're yielded to the Spirit, but people of faith have the capacity to do much harm when we're living a life of judgmentalism in our flesh. We must separate from even the thought of behavior that would not lead others closer to Jesus Christ. As we continue looking here, we'll see the spiritual salting. The spiritual salting. These closing words paint a picture of what is needed, as the Bible says, to have peace with one another. Uh, We find the mention here of salt and fire. Now, this is a statement we read, and we could talk a lot about salt, and we could talk a lot about fire, but really, if we're going to understand what Jesus is talking about here, we have to understand the Old Testament context. And in the Old Testament, before a sacrifice was placed on the fire, it was salted. And that was a symbolic way of saying this is, this is ready. This has been prepared. It's, it's, it's ready now for the Lord to take it. It represented soundness and sweetness and wholesomeness and acceptability. And in our time, salt remains salty. But, you know, in the time of Christ, salt could lose its, its salty effects. And a salt with no flavor was a useless commodity. In fact, in Matthew 5... And verse 13, the Bible says this, You're the salt of the earth, but if the salt have lost his savor, wherewith shall it be salted? It is henceforth good for nothing, but to be cast out and to be trodden underfoot of men. This salt would be used to preserve the roads. It it, it would have much less of an impact than it could have before. In verse 50, we read this. Jesus says, Have salt in yourselves. Now, we're often big about salting everybody else and burning everybody else. And Jesus says, listen, as I'm talking to you about if you want to be the first, you've got to be the last, the servant of all. Let me just go ahead and add here, before you're trying to salt the whole world up, why don't you make sure that you've got some salt in you? In you. Have salt in you. Live the life of a sacrifice that is well-prepared and well-pleasing to the Lord. Make sure there is soundness and sweetness and wholesomeness within your life. And Paul taught this in his letter to the Romans. We mentioned in a previous study in Romans 12.1, he said this, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. This idea of holy and acceptable, again, it correlates to the Old Testament teachings. That's what was found in the symbolism of a sacrifice being salted it was it was acceptable unto god it was wholesome it was holy it had been set aside and jesus says hey make sure that you have salt in yourselves peace among believers and a powerful witness to the lost come when we seek not just to put salt on others but to be salty within the power of christ in us will be seen through us and an impact could be made you see what the disciples did was a horrible thing I want you to hear this. They set themselves up as the arbiters of all that was good and right. They wanted to be the ones to give the thumbs up or the thumbs down. 
They wanted to be the ones to create a system whereby they could evaluate everyone, of course, other than themselves in this situation. They, they wanted to evaluate the ministries of everyone else and be the ones chucking the rocks and casting the stones and criticizing and condemning and bashing. And Jesus said, listen, uh, uh, what you need to do is make sure you've got some salt in you. Don't worry about throwing salt on everyone else to begin with. Make sure that in your own heart things are right before me. They're as they should be. Jesus was teaching to consider themselves before they sought to exclude everyone else. We're to be salt in our world more than we're to pour salt on our world. Salt is a preservative. We find a reference of fire and salt, and it's interesting, both of them do the same thing. They burn. If you have a wound and you put salt in it, we know that there's a burning that comes. But the salt put in the wound, it's not just for the sake of burning. It's not for the sake of creating pain. It's not for the sake of bothering. Salt, in the process of burning a wound, it brings about a a restoration. It brings about a healing. The motive behind it all is not just to blow somebody up or to blow them out. It's to make sure that they're they're coming along. And as people come in contact with the truth, Found in the lives of believers, may they find the grace of Christ that brings deliverance and growth. Not an unhealthy judgmentalism that says, yeah, we told them to stop because they're not with us. With us. I'm sure the apostles were listening just with rapt attention. But this had to have been very hard for them to understand. There was just a great sense of exclusivity. Yep, just Jesus and us, and nobody else. I thank God for the doctrinal position that our church holds, and frankly, if I thought we were wrong, I'd change to fit a way that that someone could share with me from Scripture. I want to have that heart that says, insofar as I know, we're following the path of God. If someone could share with me from the Bible an area in which we were wrong, I'd be happy to comply with Scripture, not some man-made doctrinal statement that's been handed down. But we're doing our best here to follow the Lord. But I found within the context of churches that, I hate to use these terms because they're not biblical, but we all understand them, conservative Christianity. Sometimes we use a word like fundamentalism, and I mean, we want to be fundamental in the sense that we adhere to the fundamentals. But I I found in many churches like ours that, that, that are conservative, and we are, don't get me wrong, that we take pride in our conservatism. We take pride in our exclusivity. Well, the people of God have always been a remnant people. Nobody wants a big bride, just a pure bride, and we're the bride of Christ, and boy, are we pure, more pure than any others. And there was a time years ago in the 70s where churches like ours uh, were just the ones leading in the nation. I think of a book written, The Ten Fastest Growing Churches in the United States, and eight of the ten were churches that believed just like ours. And when that ceased to be the case, we sought to find other ways whereby we could validate ourselves. Not finding our acceptance in Christ, but validate ourselves. So we'd say, well, we see more saved than anybody else. But listen, there are some places where I don't agree with them uh, completely on theology. They're seeing a lot of people saved. And then we'd say, well, we're seeing more baptized than anybody else. And again, I'm grateful for our position. And if I saw a place in Scripture where we needed to change, I'd do it. But I think we're on the right path. But I've got to tell you, there's some places where maybe I wouldn't place my church membership, but they're seeing people saved and they're seeing people baptized. And and then we began to degenerate into, well, well, we dress nicer than they do. And we carry a bigger Bible than they do. And we began to create all the these rules whereby we could do exactly what John was doing here. Man, we're going to salt them up real good because they're not of us. And Jesus said, why don't you salt yourself up real good? Why don't you have some salt in you? 
Now, lest you mistake what I'm saying to think that I mean we need to waffle on the issues and I'm being soft on, on a position on the Bible, I'm not at all. I'm just saying in the process of seeking to follow the Word of God, if you don't have the Spirit of Christ, we're a pretty sorry example of what it is to be a Christ-like one. Since when do you got to be crabby to be a follower of Jesus Christ? And condemning and judgmental and hurtful and just all the time hurting folks? And frankly, I think at times, if we're not careful, we can do more harm than good when we get self-righteous and cliquish. I can only imagine what Peter was thinking as Jesus was saying all of this, you know? It really ran contrary to his way of thinking, but in time we see that Peter came to understand that as we live as a sacrifice... Enduring the pain that comes along with it all, that, that we will in time find the joy of Christ using our lives for His glory. You see, later Peter wrote in 1 Peter 5 and verse 10, But the God of all grace, who hath called us unto His eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after that ye have suffered a while, make you perfect, establish, strengthen, settle you. I think it's wonderful that Peter comes to the place where he says, Listen, once we understand what God is and, and what we understand what His grace is about, and once we've answered the call unto eternal glory by Christ, it's at that point that we suffer a while, but, but then He begins to make us perfect. He, he matures us. He, he builds us. He, he he establishes us. He strengthens us. He settles us. There's a progression taking place here, and it's called sanctification. A growth curve in the Christian life. Well, you say, Pastor, is it good if, if young Christians haven't got it all figured out yet? No. But the last thing they need is for me or John or anyone else to say, you're not just like me, so you're out of the club, buddy. What they need is someone who could salt themselves within and find Christ-like humility. And say, you know, I'm to be last, not first. And servant of all. Hey, brother, why don't we get together and have some coffee? I'd love to talk with you and get to know them and love them and help them and lead them. Oh, isn't it wonderful when you see the Lord work in someone's life? But isn't it wonderful when the Lord works in our lives? There's something within all of us that can be completely, that, that can completely understand a mentality that consists of us and them. We're all built that way. Us and them. But for people of faith, it's us for them. It's not us and them, it's us for them. And us and them mentality makes enemies out of other people. And Jesus didn't say anything in here about make enemies with other people. He said, and have peace one with another. The peace of which Christ spoke cannot come to those who view others as enemies. I want you to know tonight, we're living in a land that is adrift. And there, there are things happening in America today that just in my few years of living, I never thought I'd see. And I look at an unsaved world with an unregenerate mindset, an unregenerate worldview with desires that are ungodly and unscriptural. And I see them moving away and away and away. And if I'm not careful, I can get so angry at the lost I think there are enemies and they're not our enemies worse yet as a Christian I can look at other Christians who don't do it exactly the way I do and say I'm going to disqualify you from anything that's good and right because frankly you do it different than me therefore you're my enemy and although I can't condone everything I do much less anything everyone else does I think it's wonderful when we can have Christ work in such our lives that we engender peace 
The lost are not our enemy. The wayward are not our enemy. Those who serve Jesus from their hearts in a different group than our own are not our enemy. And as Jesus said, as Jesus said, as God the Son said, have peace one with another. I wonder what would happen to the discipleship at Coastline Baptist Church if if we decided to take seriously the command of Jesus Christ, have peace one with another. Sometimes to have peace, you've got to make peace. You've got to get out of your comfort zone. You've got to care for people. You've got to spend time with people. What a shame it is that sometimes we approach a day like Friend Day and we think, well, I don't have any friends that aren't Christians. Why not? Why not? Well, I don't want to be around those people. Um, why not? Uh, don't do what they do if it's against the Word of God. But last time I checked, we're to be out there trying to win people to Jesus Christ. I think we all ought to have a network of friends that we're, we're building bridges with. We're loving them. We're catching them before we let the Lord clean them. We're helping to bring them to Jesus Christ. These people are born into the family of God. Really, they don't know anything other than they're saved. I wonder how it would change our church if we began to have a mindset that says, you know, I want to love these people. I don't want to offend them. I want to love them and help them. A mindset that says, I, I want to have peace one with another. Oh, friends, our world is filled with conflict, and there will come times where we've got to take the biblical analogies of spiritual warfare, and we've got to stand, and having done all the stand, but we need to be careful to understand who the enemy is today, and the enemy is the devil who wants to steal, kill, and destroy. And when we see lost people, we need to see souls that God loves that need us to care, not to condemn them. We, we need to see in believers that maybe aren't exactly where we think they need to be. We need to see them as, as the blood-bought children of God that they are and love them and care for them. And if there's areas in which they can grow, we should do our very best to help them. And frankly, we might be shocked at how some of these young, immature believers have some ways in which they can help us along in the process as well. And Jesus said, Jesus said, God the Son said, have peace one with another. Our Father, thank you for the...